so how can i say i belong uh, which 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 country i am belonging which flags is mine which passport is mine it was really painful so that we we motivated the situation uh, from the hatred and and living without citizenship we decided we had to do something the un estimates that at least 10 million people around the world are stateless but nobody knows the real number so khalid he's one of these stateless people um and he's from the bahari community in bangladesh we'll be hearing from him throughout the podcast series but more of that later In this first podcast, we will be asking what statelessness actually is and what it means for someone to be stateless. Why are stateless people often referred to as being invisible and how big is this problem? This is the first podcast in a new series, The Paperless People, which is produced by the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion. And I'm your host, Zahra Elbarazi. We'll be talking to human rights activists working to try and solve this problem. and human rights activists who are looking at turning exclusion into belonging. And we also want to focus on a particular dilemma around this problem. We'll get to it at the end of this podcast. In fact, this dilemma will form the backbone of what the rest of the series will be about. But firstly, we want to discover what is statelessness and what does being stateless do to people. it does many different things and i think this is an important thing to focus on there can be something about statelessness that sounds like a legal amorphous category but really it affects every single aspect of your life my name is tendaya chuman i'm the un special rapporteur on racism racial discrimination xenophobia and related intolerance so if you think about when you wake up in the morning and you try and do any activity any activity that requires you to produce identification for example is going to be an activity that as a stateless person um is going to be impossible or very difficult for you so you know if an if identity is required to get health care treatment if it's required to enroll in a school if it's required to open a bank or get a job as a stateless person at each one of those intersections you are going to encounter a closed door or maybe even um arrest or deportation so it really permeates all access all aspects of of life i should say if you are stateless uh, you do uh, lack access to a lot of rights my name is rené de groot i am uh, emeritus professor that means a retired professor of private international law and comparative law at uh, Maastricht University in the Netherlands the concept of nationality is a kind of yeah connecting factor connects Uh, for people who possess a certain nationality or rights to this nationality and if you miss this connection due to the fact that you do not have uh, citizenship not having a nationality uh, you may have uh, serious difficulties to get uh, for example security cards uh, to to get uh, 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 health insurance to get access to sh- schools and so on It was once said by a famous uh, person it's the right to get rights. And and uh, that is famous too. That famous person he mentions is Hannah Arendt, a German-American Jewish philosopher and political thinker who was one of the first writers to discuss the issue of statelessness. So there's a legal definition of statelessness. It goes like this. A stateless person is an individual who is not recognized by any country as a national under the operation of its law. And this is then a person who does not have any nationality of any country across the world. 
This might sound abstract, but without a recognized nationality, as both René de Rhodes and Tendaya Chumi say, access to all other rights become near impossible. So, how do people become stateless? Some people um, are stateless because of historical circumstances. So in African countries, for example, as a result of colonialism, some people are in this liminal state of not having the citizenship of the state that they're in because borders changed. And so you have different circumstances that create stateless populations. In other contexts, you know, a child is born, that child isn't able to uh, get a birth certificate, um, and maybe it's because of their religion or their ethnicity or their religious uh, belongings of their parents, and then they end up stateless as well. And so there's countless different examples of how people become um, stateless, but often discrimination plays a, a role. So there are many reasons that people can become stateless, and it is clear that the impact is devastating. One current major concern is the number of refugee children from Syria who are becoming stateless. Uh, we are faced with a lot of uh, yeah, uh, refugee migration coming from Syria. If uh, a woman leaves Syria being pregnant and then gives birth to a baby outside of uh, Syria and she cannot prove that she is married and as a refugee one does not take with you all the yeah, certificates with, which one may need later on in life, uh, then uh, the Syrian woman cannot pass her citizenship to the child. Therefore, these children, and uh, I think they are really yeah, being born daily nowadays, are stateless. That is a big problem. A few years ago, I was doing research on Syrian refugees and was in an informal camp where there were Syrian refugee children um, playing. And the circumstances were that these children were in a country that hadn't granted them refugee status. Um, they had been born in that country. And so as a result of having been born there and there was an issue to do with the nationality of their parents, that actually meant that Syrian citizenship isn't something that was open to them. They didn't have the citizenship of the country that they were in. And what was the saddest about that is that the children were playing with no concept of how factors beyond their control are going to shape, like I said, almost every single interaction they're going to have with a public institution or law enforcement when they grow up. And that's it's, it's really heartbreaking to think about it that way. Oftentimes we think that bad things happen to people who have done bad things and it's about accountability. And when you don't have citizenship, you must have done something that means it should be taken away from you. And I think the vast majority of uh, people who are stateless have circumstances under which really it would be um, tragic if it happened to your own child or to your own family member. And I would say that sticks with me, the, the innocence of those children and the ramifications of statelessness that will follow them just about everywhere they go. The UN says that there are around 10 million stateless people in the world, but this is very much an estimate. The real figure is much higher. By its very nature, being stateless means that people have little or no official documentation. It's most likely that they've never been registered anywhere, so getting any kind of statistics on this population is near impossible. Most importantly, their right to have rights is often denied. And in a world where being able to legally identify yourself is vital, the stateless find themselves invisible. They exist in a sort of limbo world, struggling with a day-to-day -day existence in which they have to prove their right to belong at every turn. 
What's important is it's not just bad luck and circumstance that leads to statelessness. Discrimination is often at the heart of what causes statelessness. Unfortunately, discrimination plays a massive role in statelessness. It plays an important role in the creation of statelessness. I've just put out a report to the UN Human Rights Council that actually points out that most groups that are stateless are stateless as a result of some kind of uh, direct or indirect form of, of discrimination. So unfortunately, discrimination and statelessness go hand in hand in the creation of statelessness. And then once you are stateless, that becomes a basis for discrimination as well. And so as a stateless person your access to housing, to education, to employment, to all of these other rights are, are very deeply compromised. So it's, there's a very intimate link there and it goes in, in both directions. We've just arrived at this village and as you can see from these fires, they've only just been lit. In fact, we bumped into the people who almost certainly lit them. We aren't out here for long when we start to see Myanmar's military moving. You can see them just past this settlement. They take up position on their side of the border. At first, Desperate and increasingly hopeless situation. Now, earlier I spoke to Yanghee Lee, the UN Special Rapporteur to Myanmar. She told One example of the way discrimination fuels statelessness can be found in Myanmar, where people from the minority Muslim Rohingya community have faced structural discrimination in the majority Buddhist country. So there it's a humanitarian disaster, and of course you've seen it unfolding on the TV news each time there's a new peak in the misery being inflicted. More than 900,000 Rohingya have now fled Myanmar to overcrowded camps in Bangladesh. This is due to widespread persecution and a campaign against them that the UN has labelled a possible genocide. In a very recent UN report, investigators have taken an extraordinary move and called for army leaders from Myanmar to be tried at the International Criminal Court on genocide charges. In March of 2018, the organisation the ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights conducted surveys in the camps in Bangladesh and reported that over 27,000 children had lost at least one parent and almost 8,000 had lost both. These parents are missing and therefore presumed dead. There are also no reliable estimates of the number of Rohingya people who have been killed, although very recently a group of academics have put it at approximately 40,000. The official Myanmar government death toll is in the hundreds, well, we a figure that Human Rights Watch has described as a bad the joke. The extent of the destruction was staggering, though, and most of them were Muslim villages. Well, they call this place Lil Panjor. It is an unfolding humanitarian disaster. And you actually see groups of Rohingya in places. I'm from India, for instance. You see groups of Rohingya in various different societies who are excluded. You see groups of Rohingya who are trying to, in the Middle Eastern context, pretend to be from Bangladesh. You have them so that this idea that somehow you can't be who you are because who you are is so problematic that there's no space for you. My name is Joshua Castellino. I'm professor of law and dean of the School of Law at Middlesex University in London. You do see groups of individuals who are just like you and me, who are put into situations where the accident of their birth determines what their capabilities are. And that is such a, is such a limiting feature because they couldn't do anything about their birth. And I think that is the most poignant aspect of this, that actually if people don't understand the empathy towards the stateless is that by design this is something that occurs. And if we don't seem to have, as, as human beings, the imagination to, to redesign and to reimagine that particular situation, then we are in real trouble and could happen to any one of us. The example of the Rohingya makes it crystal clear. 
Statelessness and discrimination go hand in hand, and this potent mix can lead to the sorts of situations where persecution spills over into the world's worst kind of human rights violations. Groups of people are attacked for no other reason than being seen as not belonging, not belonging to a certain community, and being seen as outsiders. While this happens, the world is left to wring its hands as a humanitarian disaster unfolds in front of our eyes. Ultimately, what's at stake in situations of statelessness is the enjoyment of the right to a nationality. And so, of course, being stateless is being denied this. But how do most people get nationality in the first place? Professor René de Rotz explains. Yeah, there are several uh, ways to get a nationality. But most people get a nationality uh, in the moment of birth. And that can have two reasons. One can get a nationality due to the fact that one of the parents has the nationality of the country involved. For example, I got the nationality of the Netherlands because my father was a Netherlands national. Um, another possibility is that you get uh, the nationality by birth on the territory of a state. That happens, for example, in the United States. My uh, sister was living in the United States, and they got ch uh, she got uh, children on the territory of the United States, and then the children were automatically American citizens. And a third way to get uh, a nationality is by so-called naturalization. That is, getting the nationality on application. For example, one came as a migrant in a country and having resided there for a certain period, normally states uh, used to require uh, between three and ten years, depends on the country, then you can apply for a citizenship. And if you meet all the conditions, you will be granted the nationality by, as we call it, naturalization. So it all sounds so simple. And for the majority of people in the world, it is. The majority of people in the world do have a nationality. But for the millions of people who are denied citizenship, life can be a nightmare. And there are many ways that this can actually come about. As we have seen, discrimination against certain groups plays a major role. We also see that changing borders and the movement across borders is another factor. Discrimination in nationality laws is also a big problem. One example are the many countries around the world where women can't give nationality to their children. Only the fathers can do it. When I personally think of statelessness, one of the things that is most prominent for me is the way that it splits families. Statelessness is, is, is a very painful thing for any community. Everywhere the minorities are somehow related with the statelessness. This is a very common thing, you know. What you are uh, seeing in, in Myanmar, uh, the Rohingyas are Muslim, the majorities are Buddhist. So everywhere the minorities are facing the problem of statelessness. So, so now the time has come to you know, work on the statelessness issues. This is really a burning issue in, in, in the globally. Khaled Hassan, who gave us a small glimpse into his life. Khaled is talking to us about not belonging, and more specifically, about being stateless. At the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned a dilemma that we wanted to flag up. This dilemma being the backbone of the rest of the series. Here it is. So you know the UN Sustainable Development Goals, what we call the SDGs? These are universal targets to help do things like eradicate poverty, 
to help get kids into schools around the world, to improve health and to tackle climate change. Well, there's also a goal on legal identity. It falls under goal number 16, which is about peace, justice and strong institutions. Just a note, you'll hear a lot of experts using different words when they talk about the SDGs. So we've got things like goal 16, target 16.9, indicator 16.9.1, and there are a lot of different parts to it, but we're talking about the same issue, the right to legal identity. The legal identity goal is number 16.9, and you know what, it's seen as a kind of obvious and self-explanatory way of working towards providing legal identity for all. So this could be the silver bullet to solve the statelessness problem, right, that we've been talking about. Here's the thing, though. Working on this goal without really understanding the underlying issues of statelessness can actually make things worse. Without understanding the structural problems that result in people being stateless and ignoring them while trying to implement legal identity for all can be problematic. For example, there's a risk in introducing new ID systems that ignore the underlying causes of statelessness. And this can potentially leave those currently on the outside even further from getting the citizenship that they are currently denied. Exclusion could be really set in concrete, either through incompetence or even by design. And what is the role of new technological identity solutions in this mix? I think, unfortunately, there's a certain amount of hype from the biometric technology companies, the identification the companies that provide identity documents about buy our shiny piece of kit and you will solve your identification problems. But identification is not fundamentally a technical problem. Your fingerprints do not say that you are a national. Your iris scan does not indicate that you are British or French or Nigerian or Kenyan or Senegalese. It doesn't answer that question. The question is a legal one and a political one. And I think trying to press releases that say that this shiny piece of technology is going to fix your problem are simply not understanding the nature of the problem in countries where identification is a challenge. So you just heard from Bronwyn Mambi, who's a fellow at the London School of Economics and an expert on statelessness in Africa. So these are questions on the role of new technological solutions. No doubt there are plenty of good intentions from people working on the legal identity goal. But without carefully planning for these currently excluded, there's a real danger that things can actually get worse for them. In the next podcast, what we'll do is dive into this dilemma a little bit further. And in the rest of the series, we'll highlight stories from around the world, which hone in on the need to keep the issue of statelessness, with all its complexity, in the spotlight. Thanks to René de Hort, Bronwyn Mambi, Khaled Hassan, Joshua Castellino and Tendaya Chumi for taking part in this podcast. We'd really love to know what you think of the podcast and any ideas that you may have, so please do get in touch. The best way to do that is through our Twitter handle. You can find us at, at InstitutesI, or alternatively, you can also just send us an email. Uh, here you can find us at info at institutesi.org. Music in the podcast is from Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. You can find a link in the show notes. From me, Zahar Barazi, thanks for listening.